chapter 22. As we get here, we find a pretty major transition taking place. As we have been working through uh, these recent chapters or recent passages in Luke, uh, we've seen Jesus drawing attention to the difference between reality and perception. There's been a lot of teaching that has taken place as the Pharisees have, or the, the leaders, some of the Pharisees, some Sadducees, the scribes, the high priests, they've been seeking to take him down. Now things come to a head. He's already entered Jerusalem. We've had this triumphal uh, entry as we see it in the headings of our, of our Bibles a lot of the time. But he's been received as king. He's been recognized as Messiah. They don't get what that means fully, but they have recognized that he's the one. The masses have seen this. And they've chanted his name. But now we transition out of all of the teaching. Most of what we've seen from Luke chapter 1 up through Luke chapter 21 has been establishing who Jesus is. Giving his background, his pedigree, the, the credibility of his authority. He's been laying out for us what the Word of God actually teaches as opposed to what our perception of it is. He's been drawing our attention from the beginning to the reality of God's kingdom rather than to the religious practices of earth. He's been pulling us out of the immediate suffering that we face into an upward gaze where we see that God is bigger than whatever it is that we're going through. But now the teaching, for all intents and purposes, comes to something of a halt. Not entirely. We'll continue to see teaching take place. But now we're transitioning more into the action of what we historically call Passion Week. We're getting to the events of the final week of the life of Christ leading directly, not just indirectly. We've been, we're in this week already. We've been seeing some direct things. But now we see the direct impact that will lead to the cross. You'll remember in Luke 19.10, Jesus said the reason He came was to seek and to save the lost. He didn't need to be an example for us. He didn't come just to teach us. He did both of those things. He didn't come to heal the sick in this world so that He could just get sick again. He didn't come to raise the dead so that they can die again. He came to seek and to save the lost, to heal eternally, to raise the dead in sin, to life in Him. That happens at the cross. He had set His face for Jerusalem, and now He's here, and the moment that He's been looking forward to, perhaps dreading when He gets to the garden, but right now, still looking forward to, just a short time ago, Jesus said, I've come to set fire. I wish it were already kindled. I wish the work were already going, that the kingdom were being established and we weren't continuing to live in this sinful, broken world. But that time will come. Here, we see this shift. And we're going to look at just six verses today in Luke 22 the first six. And as we look at these, Matthew's account, the other Gospels are instructive. They're helpful. We'll primarily look at Matthew's in addition to it. But what we'll see in this, our core reality, is that no scheme of Satan can triumph over the plans of God. No scheme of Satan can triumph over the plans of God. This has always been true. This will always be true. We see it demonstrated in the very beginning of the book when God creates perfect universe. And sin enters. And God has already planned out, before that happens, the redemption of His creation. Jesus is referred to as the, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. In other words, before the earth was created, before sin existed, Jesus was already set apart as the sacrifice. 
In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes in, usurps, at least it would seem to be, usurps the authority of God, tricks the woman and the man into betraying their Lord. And even in that moment, God announces, there will be a time when the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. We're getting to that time. Enough talking, let's read. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were 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 looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Father, as we open your word today, help us to seek rightly. Help us to receive it humbly, humbly. Father, help us to act on it urgently. Pray this in Christ's name. As we take a look at this, our, our, our central point, our main idea that we want to grasp here is that no scheme of Satan can triumph over the plans of God. Now let's let's observe this for just a moment. As we walk through this particular thing, we've transitioned into the action of the Passion Week now, and we're going to walk through this passage a little bit, and there are some observations that we can make as we look at this. <clears throat> Notice... First off, that this is a prophesied event. If you're not sure, let's look back at uh, let's look back at Matthew. Matthew chapter 26 talks about this. <clears throat> Matthew 26. It's on page 882. Just kidding. It is, but it's not probably in your Bible. Matthew 26, starting with verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That by itself is it is itself a prophecy. Jesus is saying, I will be handed over. He has been telling them this straight along. The Son of Man will be betrayed, crucified, and will rise again. They didn't get it. They won't get it until after he's resurrected. Then they'll understand. <clears throat> then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Uh, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. This ties directly into what Luke says about them being afraid of the people. They were trying to kill Jesus, for they feared the people. At the time of the Passover, that, that was a, a very inspiring, passionate time. While there is a spiritual element of the people looking back and remembering what God had done, it had the same sort of a, uh, of a cultural vibe, perhaps, as what we might see with Christmas in our day. Everything is decorated. Everything is parades and so on. <clears throat> Not literally speaking, but the same mentality that we have here. Everybody's engaged. People are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Families are gathering. They're so excited as they prepare for the Passover. And people are thinking about the promises of God coming to fulfillment. People are hungry for a Messiah. A political upheaval is right there to be had. As false messiahs would come up, they would often come at times like this, at Passover, other high holidays, when the people are ready to receive it. So they're 
fearful that Jesus might now, as he's entered Jerusalem, as the people have hailed him as king, that he might have this uprising. But if they were to get rid of the people during the festival, get rid of Jesus during the festival, the people might revolt against them. They want the people, perhaps, to revolt, but not against them. These leaders don't actually want that at all. The masses, the, the population, want that sort of thing. They want to throw off the shackles of Rome. But those who are in power under Rome, they're kind of comfortable in those shackles. They don't want to get rid of the status quo because it's working for them. They don't want to kill him during the during the festival. Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. They asked. John points out in his gospel that this is Judas doing the asking. Matthew says the disciples. So while Judas may have used the words, clearly others were also thinking similar thoughts. This could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Again, so Judas was a thief. He handled the money. So while he was excited about getting the money in the purse, it wasn't necessarily to help the poor. It was to help poor Judas. His motives weren't pure. Aware of this in verse, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but she will, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Observe that we just fulfilled that prophecy. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Then they engaged together in this last, pass, last Passover meal. And Jesus in verse 22, I'm sorry, verse, 20, uh, verse 21, but let's back up to 20. tells again of the betrayer. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. He's already said he's going to be handed over. Now he's specifically saying, It's one of you. One of my closest friends sitting here with me at this table at this most important time. Think about what this means. It's not insignificant that all four of the Gospels, as they talk about Judas betraying him, all of them point out and emphasize that it's one of the twelve. It's not just somebody out there. It's not that he was betrayed by somebody you would expect to betray him. It's not one of the disciples that was following along in the crowd. It's one of the twelve. Think about right now, in this group, in this room, if I said one of you was going to turn me over to the authorities who are beheading Christians. Wouldn't you start to look around? Wouldn't you think, wow, this is a really small group. Extra small for them. But we've got a whole lot more than 12 of us here. Take it a step farther. Think about your Christmas dinner. The family members that you have at your Christmas dinner, sitting at your table, sharing your food, maybe sleeping at your house. One of them. Jesus knows this. And yet he still dines with them. Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, understatement of the passage. They were very sad. And began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, there are various dippings. If you've been to one of our Passover Seder meals, uh, you've experienced that as we dip the, the different parts of the meal symbolically. In this dipping of the bread into the bowl here, 
betrayer is identified. 24, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. It was prophesied. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. I have to pause because I don't even know for sure. This is just my own speculation. I don't know if Judas realized yet that it was him. And he's already gone and agreed to it, but I don't know if he's really gotten it. So often we get caught up in and we're in over our heads before we even realize what we're doing. And we're doing it. We're moving consciously toward it or intentionally toward it. And yet it doesn't quite register fully. I don't know at what point exactly Judas became conscious of his sin. But it's been said, I don't know who said it, I've been saying it for years and I don't know who I stole it from. That sin is temporary insanity. All sin. It has to be. How could we possibly do anything against the God who created the universe? Any rational sense. But we take leave of our senses and we do things that we should not be doing. he was covering. Perhaps it hasn't registered yet. Jesus answered, you've said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus goes on, not not to let anybody be comfortable, to predict Peter's de- denial as well. We'll talk about that a bit later. But jump ahead to verse 47. While he was still speaking, while Jesus is still speaking to his disciples in the garden there, Judas, again, one of the twelve, Interestingly, Matthew has just said this, right? He's driving home this point that it's one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged the signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. He kissed him. that one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. This horrible thing, Jesus said, was predicted. It was prophesied. Very specific prophecy about it. Turn the page to Matthew 27. This is a very specific prophecy. And the more I read it, the more astonishing it is. Every time I see the words of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament, I'm shocked isn't the right word because it's expected. But I am astonished. I'm taken aback at just thorough God is in promising and keeping His promises. In Matthew 27, we see what happens with Judas. We'll refer back to this later, so pay attention as we go. Starting with verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. 
returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So, G so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. It didn't keep them from making it blood money, did it? There's blood on their hands, they're concerned about it. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now what was said here by Jeremiah the prophet is written by Zechariah the prophet in his book. We don't know when Jeremiah said it, but as Zechariah quotes him, draws from it, it's amazing how closely it follows. Turn to Zechariah chapter 11. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, go to, from Matthew, turn to the left slightly, you only have a couple of books. Zechariah is one of the last of the Old Testament, Matthew is the first of the New Testament. I'll give you just a moment to get there. The books are... Uh, at this point in the Old Testament are very small. That's why they're called the Minor Prophets, because they're skinny books. Zechariah is speaking here, and he gives the, this metaphor that God has called him to give of two shepherds and the removal of God's favor. Let's pick up with verse 10. Without getting into the depth of the prophecy... I think you'll see the parallels as we go. Verse 10, Then I took my staff called Favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. Zechariah the prophet is playing the role of the shepherd in the metaphor. I told them, If you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. The Lord uses a lot of sarcasm in the prophets. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the family bond between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost, or seek the young, or heal the injured, or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered and his right eye totally blinded. God was doing something in Israel as he laid them to waste, essentially bringing judgment upon them. They rejected the shepherding that he offered to them. They didn't value him any better than a slave. Thirty pieces of silver was the price set in Exodus to pay for a slave damaged by a neighbor's bull. If the slave was gored by the bull, then you would make recompense with 30, pace, 30 pieces of silver. Same price at which Israel valued their same price at which Judas valued his master, the one he called rabbi, the one he kissed. And he threw that blood money back to them. Eventually it ends up in the hands of the potter, just as it does in Zechariah. As they buy the potter's field from him, that, that place where they would go and get the 30 pieces of silver was a awfully cheap piece of land. Basically, you're buying land nobody else wants. In the first chapter of Acts, we see that Judas then falls headlong into it, 
his intestines burst out. Whether he was dumped there following his hanging, or if this happened to be the place where he was hanged, we don't know. But we know in his remorse, he let that sorrow drive him to suicide and despair, rather than to repentance. Suicide's a hard thing. At its root, however, at its root is a failure to trust God to be bigger than our circumstances. Again, sin is temporary insanity. All of the maladies that take us down in this life, we can diagnose them a hundred different ways, but all of them are intended and designed to separate us from our Master. Judas felt sorrow. You ever notice how after you, when you come to your senses again, you're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? I said I was never going to do that again. How did I end up here? How did I let that come out of my mouth? How did I let that go into my mouth? How did I treat that person that way? How did I get this attitude? What happened to me? Judas is there. But rather than falling on his knees before the cross, he puts a rope around his neck and falls from a tree. Sin leads to death. For the sake of time, I need to move on, but as we are looking at this, understand that there is a fairly typical pattern we can learn from as we observe the betrayal of Judas. In fact, Judas seems very familiar. Perhaps you will see yourself in this pattern. I know I see myself. It's a pretty typical pattern of how we go about our sinning or how we get caught off guard. How do we get trapped? When Satan puts a snare out for us, how do we get there? I think you'll recognize some of these things. First, we see, I'm I'm back in Luke 22 here, looking at those first six verses. We see Judas finds himself in a moment of strength, in a moment of weakness. Verse 1, we see the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. This is a high spiritual moment. This is revival time. This is when people get convicted about their sins. They're coming to make the sacrifice. They're coming to celebrate God. So we're, we're getting our minds focused on Him. This is a spiritual mountaintop. And yet also, right before this, as we read in Matthew, Judas is really tripping because the woman anoints Jesus with this expensive perfume. Now, I'm not entirely sure. Some people are very sure. I'm a little less sure. Whether Judas is more upset because this waste happened. True, for sure that. Or if he was more upset when Jesus said, she's anointed me for burial. Because Judas seems to have different expectations of Messiah than the Messiah has. Perhaps Judas now is giving up on the dream. And we've given up everything to follow you. But you seem to be resigned to this death thing. Why do you keep talking about dying? You, you seem to have a death wish. Perhaps that turned his heart. One way or another, the same thing happens to Judas that so happens to us. We get into a weak point, and Satan gets a hold of us. Or we are at a high point, and we let our guard down, and Satan gets a hold of us. We talk about this all the time, with the dynamic after baptism or surrounding baptism, when the, the devil just seems to attack our minds. And so often, life seems to fall apart right around that time. Other times... We just keep getting bombarded and bombarded and bombarded. And what God is using to shape us gets us so far back on our heels that we fall. We don't have to fall, but we do. Very often, Satan will attack in these moments. He 
see in First Peter 5.8 that our enemy is prowling. He's roaming like a hungry lion looking for someone to devour. Lions don't attack the herd in strength. They seek the stragglers. They seek the weak. Why go after the strength of the herd when they're gathered together and strong, like right now, when we can pick them off with an easy kill? The devil loves us in isolation. That's why the first thing that happens in our minds when we start to spiral downward is to shut it off. I, I can't go to church today. It's too heavy. It's too too dark. I'm not worthy. Whatever thousand thoughts come in, God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted. It's just too much. And we sequester ourselves away. But you know who doesn't get stopped by our front door? The enemy. Nor does the Spirit of God. When we shut ourselves away, Satan attacks. And he looks for these moments of strength and moments of weakness to be able to pull us in. Notice also in verse 2, there's an external opportunity. The festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Judas knew they were trying to get rid of Jesus. They didn't force him to do this, but because that was there, because they were looking for a way, there was an opportunity to sin. There's so much talk in our world about modesty and purity, and I've been seeing supposed Christians mocking the concept of purity and mocking the concept of modesty. And we have gone out of our way in our culture to just make zero sense talk about how women are objectified by men, and therefore they should have the right to dress any way they want, and be scantily clad. The two things just don't work well together. It's true that men are accountable for their own sin. Men, make a covenant with your eyes, keep them where they belong. But, the opportunity is external. The sin is internal. The opportunity is external. There are opportunities that are afforded for us to sin by the internet that have never existed before. But there have always been opportunities. When you are at your weakest point, the devil will throw something in your path that will catch your attention. When you are most disgruntled with your spouse, some charming customer will come along and make you feel special. Some co-worker will praise you tell you how nice to look. It's very easy for us to fall into temptation when the external opportunity is there. And it catches us in a moment of weakness, whether we've been beaten down or whether we're coming off of a high point and letting our guards down. We need to be aware of that. Notice also in verse 3, Satan's influence. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Iscariot means man of Kiriath. So probably he was from there, or at least his family line. It distinguishes Judas from the other Judases. There are lots. It's a common name. Jude, Judah, Judas. It's all the same name. Jesus' own brother had that name. So it's important for them to say, not this Judas, but that Judas. Again, one of the twelve is emphasized throughout this. Judas had been with Jesus from the beginning. When Satan enters Judas, he is present with Jesus at the time. He's being attacked. Now, there may be some debate as to what the text means by enter. Does that mean he's actually possessed by Satan? Or that Satan entered in a, in a more general sense, that he entered the picture, and he came into Judas 
in a, a way of influence. Either one. For a Christian, those who are actually in Christ and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, it is impossible, note this, it is impossible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon. That cannot happen. Because you are possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. Guess which one's stronger? That's an easy choice, right? When the Spirit of God lives in you, no demon can. However, there's a difference between being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. Being indwelt by the Spirit means He lives in me because I'm in Christ. I have a union with Christ in God, and the Spirit of Christ dwells in every believer. All who have Christ have the Spirit of Christ. Being filled with the Spirit has not so much to do with whether I have the Spirit, but whether the Spirit has me. Who am I listening to? Whose influence am I under? So often we see people filled with the Spirit in the New Testament. It's There's an analogy, there's a picture that goes along with drunkenness. Why? When we are under the influence of alcohol, the alcohol has a very profound impact on our behavior. The same is true with the Spirit. When I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm under the Spirit's influence. Therefore, the Spirit is influencing the things that come out of my mouth, the decisions that I make, the way I conduct myself. But if I'm not, rest assured that the devil is waiting to every turn. He wants to devour you. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a liar and the father of lies. And Satan will lie to you. Now Judas, because of this very specific position that he is in, in this very specific betrayal, is being targeted by Satan himself. For most of us, it's probably not that particular that particular person. But the forces of Satan are constantly seeking us out, hunting us, hiding in the shadows, just waiting to pick us off. Satan influences him. And with that external opportunity and the influence of the devil, notice what happens. Verse 3 says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Verse 4, And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. In this verse, we see that Judas goes out of his way. We'll get to that in the next one. He goes out of his way to pursue this. And he shows who he is. And we need to notice at this point that not everyone who is with Christ is in Christ. Not everyone who is with Christ is in Christ. Jesus told a parable about the wheat and the tares. There are tares among the wheat. What does that mean? Tares is a, a, a type of plant that looks a lot like wheat, but isn't wheat. It's a weed. It's growing up among the garden, it says that the enemy actually sows the tares into the wheat. And if you're raising wheat, and you go out trying to pluck out all the tares, you know what you do? You destroy your wheat. So he says, don't try to pull out all the tares. The Lord of the harvest will handle that when that time comes. But do understand that in your wheat field are some who are not wheat but look like wheat. Paul describes it another way. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They come into the flock. They look like sheep. But they're there to devour. They're not sheep. Be aware. Be on your guard. Not everyone who is with Christ is in Christ. But notice this also. Even his sheep can wander. It's clear from the teaching of Scripture that Judas is not a believer. I, believe me, I wrestled with this for a long time when I was younger. Trying to see the grace and mercy of God. It's clearly taught. 
that Judas is not in heaven, but is a son of perdition. But even those of us who are sheep can be led astray. All of these things that are true of Judas are true of those who actually are in Christ. Satan is looking to attack you. He's looking to devour you. And if we let our guard down at moments of weakness or moments of strength, and we don't pay attention and we're not vigilant, then what happens is he comes in, whispers in our ear, presents an external opportunity, and we get sucked into it. And those who are the king's kids act like the king's enemies. Also in this verse we see that there is an initiation and provision that Judas makes for his sin. The opportunity is there. The devil is whispering in his ear or actually taking, taking hold of his heart. In either case, the influence of the devil with the external opportunity leads to Judas going to the priests, actually initiating this. But this whole sin hasn't come about yet. He hasn't yet convinced himself to do this. But he has made provision for the flesh in approaching them. I'm just going to talk about it. No, I, there's no way. I just, I just want to explore these possibilities. I would ever actually betray Jesus. But I, what would happen if I... I wonder what they might give me. Maybe I could make some money. Now listen, 30 pieces of silver? That ain't money. Not for blood money. But if you're willing to sell out your Savior for treasure, you're willing to sell him out cheap. Once we initiate that sin, once we make provision for the flesh, we are now going downhill and it's starting to snowball. And pretty soon we're not going to be able to stop. And we can tell ourselves that we'll repent, but we won't. Repentance is granted by God. We can't always get there. That's our next point. We start with this initiation and provision, and it leads into negotiation. We tend to do that. Notice how it happens with Judas. Verse 4, he goes and he, he talks to them, right? He approaches them, but he discusses with them how he might betray Jesus. How often do we wrestle with how close we can get to sin? There's, there are two main reasons that I don't drink alcohol. One is because my mother was killed. And that's not insignificant. The other is pretty simple. It's my witness. My I know a lot of people, including some of you, whose lives have been virtually destroyed by alcohol. I've never met anybody in my life whose life was significantly improved by alcohol. I'm not saying you need to not drink alcohol, and I'm not saying that if you take a drink of alcohol, you're going to become a drunk, or you're going to go run somebody over in a car while you're buzzed. not suggesting that. What I am saying is that if you never drink alcohol, you can never do those things. Right? Alcohol is not the issue. The issue is the negotiation that we make. I had a friend who was an alcoholic. Had it whooped, so to speak. But then got comfortable. It's no big deal for me to... At first, it's, I can't be around it. I'm not going to the bar. Not going to be around it at all. Then... Well, I want to hang out with my friends. I'm going to go to the bar, but I'm going to have a ginger ale or water. Then it becomes, well, one drink's not, that's not the same thing. That's not what I was doing before. Before, I was, I was terrible. I was a drunk, but I'm not that anymore. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm okay. I know I shouldn't, and yet then I do. I get closer and closer. In 30 years of youth ministry, one of the questions that has been asked so many times over the year, over the year regarding uh, physical intimacy is how far is too far, right? I hear it all the time. 
you're asking the question, your heart's in the wrong place. It's not a matter of how close can we get to the edge before we fall. If we don't want to fall, stay away from the edge. But we negotiate with ourselves. Judas negotiates with them. I think he's negotiating with himself too. Wrestling with whether he's going to do this. See how the response comes. As you see what happens here with Judas, understand that the enemies of Christ are happy to encourage sin. The enemies of Christ are happy to encourage sin. Look how they respond to his negotiation. Verse 5. They were, what's the word there? I only heard one person. What's the word there? I know it's a small crowd, but God, somebody's got to participate with it. What's the word there? They were delighted. They weren't just okay with it. They were delighted. Now, you don't get delighted over small things. They are not stupid. They were going to find a way to kill Jesus. That's not why they were delighted. That would be why they're happy. They were delighted because they get him, and they get him with one of his own. One of his turned against him. This is a double win. This is the best scenario. You will always have people around you who will seem to be your friends. Maybe they are in a worldly sense, but they are not committed to Christ. If you are not all in with Christ, mark this well. You are friends with the world. You are an enemy of God. James makes that abundantly clear. There will always be people around you who seem to love you, who seem to have your best interest at heart, who are very, very happy to lead you into the way of the world and away from the way of God's Word. Be vigilant. Be aware. Don't let them suck you into it. The opportunity will be there. The devil will be getting into your head, trying to influence your thoughts. If you make provision for the if you start down that road, you end up negotiating with yourself and getting closer and closer to betraying your master. And as you get to where you betray the master, there will be people ready to push you in. Let's go. Jump in. The water's fine. Excited to help you betray the one you love. There's so much more to say on this point. Move on. Notice that he gives conscious conscious consent. Verse 6, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. How many of you, raise your hand if your translation says he covenanted with them. Do we have that in your translation? At, at this point, you know, that consent word can kind of throw us off. Consent, it's like they came to him. He goes to them. But it's at this point that he actually gives his mind over to them. That's why I think maybe he wasn't quite sure when he first went to them. He's making provision for the flesh. He's still wrestling with it inside, like we so often do. But then there comes a point when we turn the corner. When it's no longer just a thought. It's no longer a temptation. It's something we've actually given ourselves over to. Does that here? He consents to do it. He makes the agreement. Now he's in it. And then notice the last stage here. It's full engagement. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. As we saw in Matthew, and as we'll see later in Luke, we won't spend a lot of time there when we get to that passage. But as we see this, Judas fully engages. He's all in with the sin because he wasn't all in with his Lord. And as this slippery slope continues to take him down, he gets to a place where it's too late. The deed is done. Alright, here's, here's the important thing. You and I, when we sin, 
when we do that thing that we would never do, that we convinced ourselves we would never, never do, but we kept walking down the path. We kept passing by, looking at it, thinking about it, getting closer. I'll never do it, I'll never do it, but I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer. Like I'm not going to eat that brownie in the microwave. Get rid of the brownie. That's easy. And I don't mean by stuffing it in your mouth. Give it to me. <laughs> no, sorry. I apologize. But if I'm sitting there thinking about that brownie, thinking about that brownie, thinking about that brownie, say amen if you know you're going to eat that doggone brownie. Right? The only way for me to not eat that brownie is to stop focusing on that brownie and keep it around knowing that eventually I'm going to give in to it. Convincing myself that I'm not, but eventually I know I am, if I'm honest, and I seldom am. I have to get rid of it. I have to get it out of there. Or I have to leave. Leave the brownie for my wife and get out of the house. Don't be there. Not in any way speaking from personal experience. If we don't, we become, we become fully engaged in the betrayal of our master, just as Judas did. So here's the tip. Don't be Judas. I'm going to roll through these as quickly as I can because I'm well over time. Remember that there is no scheme of Satan that can triumph over the plans of God. God knew this was going to happen. While, while the devil meant it for evil, God used it for good, for his glory. For our salvation, because if Jesus had not been betrayed in keeping with the prophecies, then God would have been a liar. And Jesus wouldn't have been crucified and we wouldn't be saved. I am not suggesting we should thank Judas. God uses our trash to create treasure. But one a show that I used to watch, I don't know if it's still on the air, that I watch it sometimes, maybe some of you have it. It's called Junkyard Wars. Anybody ever seen that Junkyard Wars? So they go in, they've got, got a set period of time, and they go into this junkyard, and given the, the particular junk that's there, they have to build a machine. They have to make, design, engineer, make a working machine of some kind. But they're only using the junk that's there. That's kind of what God does with our sin. Not as it's an accident, it's planned. God knows it's coming, He knows what's happening, but He uses what He doesn't want to use because he's already decided ahead of time that he was going to use it. God, for his own glory, uses our sin to accomplish what was his will in the first place. What we could have done, if we had chosen differently at a different point, what we could have done willingly, God will use our sin to accomplish anyway. We didn't have to sin, but we did. And God uses it. So here we are. Don't be don't be Judas. First off, be vigilant. Be vigilant. Our memory verse for today is 1 Peter 5.8. You can look it up later. It's printed for you in your program if you want to read it. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yes, I know we had a be alert and sober mind two weeks in a row. That's good. right? They're both from 1 Peter. Peter's saying, you better keep your eyes up. You better have your head on a swivel. Because the devil is coming after you. And if you're not watching out, you are going to get blindsided. Pay attention. He's on the prowl. Be vigilant. I, I, like, I keep going back to the term, keep your head on a swivel. That's what we used to learn as linebackers growing up. Right? Keep your head on a swivel. You've got to see what's coming. You've got to see what's in front of you. Watch your play, but watch out for the bad guys coming to get you. As Christians, as Christ followers, we don't want to be obsessed with the devil. We don't want to be constantly looking over our shoulder. Oh, there's a devil under every rock. I have a cold. It must be the devil. That's not how it works. And we don't want to be obsessed with him. We want to be obsessed with Christ. So keep your head on the sword. Be vigilant. Know that you have an enemy hunting you. Second, be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. This was the synonym I chose for be sober in that same passage. Be sober of mind. Another rendering says be self-controlled. In other words, don't be lax. Don't be stupid. Don't let yourself be out of control. But be thoughtful. Be aware. Be conscious. Be on your guard. Be vigilant. Be vigilant or vigilant if you want. But be mindful. Be thoughtful. Know that you 
you have a job to do, be moving forward. Know that God's Word is always true, even when it doesn't feel true. Trust it. Next, gear up. Gear up. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Put your armor on. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. You can look it up for yourself. But we're told to put on the full armor of God, and each aspect of this armor is a picture of what God is giving us for protection, for provision. And it's not for nothing that the only offensive weapon there is the sword of the Spirit, the sword that the Spirit wields, which is what? Anybody know? The Word of God. If you're going to go into battle, you better bring your sword. And if you're going to bring the sword of the Spirit, then that means you get in the Word. You get diligent. You gird yourself. You put on And you start studying the Word. Because when you put the sword in the Spirit's hand, by filling your mind with the Word of God, then God protects and does battle on your behalf. Be vigilant, be thoughtful, gear up. James 4, 7 gives us the next two. Submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. Well, that seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Yes, it's all obvious. But we don't do it. That's why we have to talk about it. So it's not burdensome or tiresome for me to remind you of these things. Submit to God means I surrender my will to Him. That's why we call Him Lord. It means he's the boss, the master. He's calling the shots. If God's not calling the shots, then I don't belong to him. He won't be my savior where he is not my Lord. I must submit to God. But that means I have to trust that God's will is better than mine. All of a sudden, the mental brakes start to screech. Wait a minute. I don't really like that part so much. I like the thing about whenever I pray, and I believe that God's giving it to me, that He's going to give me what I ask for. I like that part. Except for we forget that God only gives good gifts, and He knows what those good gifts are, and I don't. So when I pray, I often pray for stupid stuff. Or I pray for what seems like good stuff with bad motives. Or I pray for what seems like good stuff but it isn't what God has planned. Because sometimes God's best stuff for us involves suffering. It involves vulnerability. And it's scary. And it's hard. You know what we do when it's scary and it's hard? We turn to Daddy. We trust Him to carry us. You know what we don't do when it's easy? why it's easy, or it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. You got all the stuff. You're not desperate yet. Sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer so that we can see Him clearly and be done with sin. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Resist the devil means stop making provision for the flesh. Stop going into it. Stop listening to the lies. When the devil tells you something, when the devil tells you that you're not who God says you are, Forget about it. He is a liar and the father of lies. Well, I can't just forget about it because it's in my head now. Okay, I want everybody right now, don't think about elephants. It doesn't work. But I have to resist him. How do I resist him? With the renewing of my mind according to Romans 12.2. Then the Spirit transforms me from within when I submit myself to God, I fill myself with the Word of God which renews my mind, and I choose to say, get behind me, Satan. I'm done with you. I will choose God's word. Even though I don't feel it, I will choose to believe it. Because I know in my knower that he is right and God is always faithful. And his word is true. Resist the devil. James 4, 7 says that if we do that, the devil will flee. Not he might flee, not he should flee, he will flee. But lastly, as we wrap this up, what happens when I don't? When I 
and fail in all of those things. I wasn't vigilant. I let myself get lazy in my mind. I didn't put my armor on. I didn't submit to God and resist the devil, and I blew it. And I betrayed my master. I think this is maybe the most important thing for all of us because this is the difference between a sheep and a sheep. This is the difference between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. When I fall, when I fail, I have to get up and get right. In other words, I have to repent. It's not that I get up and fix things myself. If I wasn't trying to shorten the words there, I would have said, get low. Get low. Then get up. i got to get on my face before God. Judas started out in the right way. He felt remorse. The problem was, he felt a worldly, fleshly, human-centered remorse. I can't believe I did this. This is horrible. But it wasn't a godly sorrow. What do I mean by that? Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. A couple of passages. Actually, this will be the last passage we look up. I'll refer to the others and you can find them for yourself. Did I say 1 Corinthians? I meant 2nd. See my confusion? Math is hard. Second Corinthians 7. Now, Paul has been writing, he's written at least three letters, perhaps four, but at least three letters to Corinth. We have two of them. This is the second. That's why we call it 2 Corinthians. But he's rebuking them in some areas, and he's calling them to account. And that can be hurtful. If you've ever had somebody tell you where you're wrong, even when they love you, people that really love you will tell you that you're wrong, right? A friend is somebody who stabs you in the front. Let that sink in. And Paul has written letters to them, and we pick up with verse 8 as he talks about it. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Notice what Judas's worldly sorrow led him to. He felt the remorse of his sin. He didn't seek mercy from God. He didn't turn from it. He embraced the despair. He hanged himself. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Contrast Peter. We mentioned earlier, and we don't have to look it up. You can trust me on this and look it up later all the Gospels here, as we see Peter also betraying his master. Jesus prophesied about Peter that he would deny him three times. Peter did that, knowing it was going to happen. Couldn't imagine that it would, and it did. Peter responds differently. He's overcome with remorse, just like Judas, and he weeps. He may continue weeping until he sees Jesus face to face after the resurrection. But we know for sure that he wept in his sorrow. So how many of you know that weeping isn't enough? It doesn't change it. I'll guarantee Judas wept. It's not recorded, but I'll guarantee that's right. If you doubt me, you can ask him when you get there. But the, the fact of the matter is, when we are overcome with remorse, weeping naturally follows. That doesn't mean we're repenting. Judas didn't turn from his sin to God. He turned from that sin to the other sin of his own understanding, taking matters into his own hands. 
when he sees Jesus gives himself over and Jesus restores him. He doesn't leave. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He repents. This is where we need to find ourselves. No scheme of Satan can triumph over the plans of God. If you are in Christ, people cannot take what you have or change you. There's no part of it that can be taken from you. If you are a child of God, you are in a relationship that can never be undone. If you're not, if you're not, seek His mercy today. It's as simple as crying out from your heart, Lord, I'm yours, save me. I know I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I trust that Jesus is who you say He is. That His death pays for all of my sins. But praying those prayers, saying those words, doesn't get it if it isn't accompanied by a transformed life. Jesus, or Judas and Peter probably said the same words, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Only one repented. Apart from repentance, there's no salvation. So when I turn to Him, He saves me. For most of us in this room, that's already your experience. You've been saved but we still fail and betray our Master, don't we? Turn. Understand that there's nothing Satan can do in your life. There's nothing Satan can trick you into doing. There's no, no circumstance that he can bring into your life that can take you out of the hand of God, that can undo what God has begun in you. And Philippians 1.6 is a very good picture of our reality, that the one who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, to bring it to its fullness, the day of Christ Jesus.